that we used to go quite a lot to the West Bank. It was before the Intifada, before the, the conflict has erupted in such a way that it did later on. And I remember going to places like Jericho and Bethlehem and Nablus, which are, you know, big Palestinian towns and having the most incredible culinary sensations. Oranges in Jericho are fantastic. They make the best juice and it's very hot. And so you get the tomatoes and everything just tastes better. And having those platters with grilled meats and the, the meze and they're all so such such evocative experiences, such strong experiences. And that's really how my that's how I remember my childhood through all these food experiences. Welcome to Fortnum's Hungry Minds podcast with me, Tom Parker Bowles. Today, I'm joined by one of the most influential chefs of the last decade, Yotam Oslengi. Now, Yotam is an internationally acclaimed author, chef and restaurateur. In 2002, together with his business partner, Sami Tamini, he launched their flagship delicatessen, Otolengi in Notting Hill. His popularity has seen Yotam open three more delis since then, as well as the Nopi and Rovi restaurants. Just this month, though, he released his eighth cookbook, Otolengi Flavour, which he co-wrote with fellow chef Bixter Balfrage. And you won't be surprised to hear that it is already a bestseller. So enough chat. Yotam, how lovely to speak to you. Thank you, Tom. It's great being with you. I'll buy it at the distance. <laughs> Socially distanced, of course. Now, this may be your eighth book, but do you still get that thrill when the first copy is pressed into your hands? Ah, it's amazing. You know, I'm I'm so heavily involved in these books. I mean, they're just, they're my life's project. I spend so much time on them. And Easter and I have been working on this for two years. So the culmination of two years hard work is so gratifying. And I, you know, I love, I love books and I, I work on it to real extreme. So, you know, there's no, in my books so far, there's been no food stylist or anyone. I, I, I really do everything, try to do everything myself with whomever I'm collaborating. So to see all that come together in such an amazing way is, is incredible. And it is, as ever, a beautiful looking book. You know, everything from the font, to the cover to photographs. It's an entire package, really. Yeah, that's how I see it. You know, I've, I feel I'm getting better at it. I, I, I'm not one to normally sing my own praises, but I kind of understood now how wonderful it is to get something which is, is perfect. And a, book, a perfect book is everything. It's, it starts off from a selection of recipes that I love and Easter loves in this case as well. This is always the starting point. There's never a concept. There's never an idea. There's not. There's never anything beyond those recipes. And that's really important for me to know that that's the starting point. And then you build on that. You create more recipes. You create chapters. You create graphics, a language. And these are incredibly important. And every one of these books is... We spend so much time. You have no idea at all. You probably do, but anyway, I'll, I'll describe it. We, we really spend a lot of time on every little detail that goes into this book. You can see this in, in the beauty, and all your books are like this. But moving from your eighth book right back to the beginning, your move into the world of food was, it was hardly a conventional path. I mean, three years uh, conscripted in, in the Israeli Defence Force Intelligence. Um, you went on to take a master's degree in comparative uh, literature and then considered a doctorate. You were an editor. And then you came to London and suddenly decided to, to go and train at the Cordon Bleu. Well, it's not the usual story, is it? No, no, it's not the usual story. I mean, when you, I don't know, somehow when it comes out of your mouth, it sounds very glamorous. And <laughs> it very, does. But <laughs> it was all a lot of very 
kind of mundane steps that have led me to where I am. And I love what I do. I started off, as you suggested, I went to university because I guess it was somehow expected of me to go to university and I expected this myself. And I had a great time at university, but I always felt slightly frustrated because I always felt that today's academic conversations, they are the, the number of people that are actually engaged in them is so small. And I, I will never forget that I spent a good year or, or over a year writing my dissertation about a very esoteric subject in uh, art philosophy, photography. And I've handed it over to my supervisor, you know, the toil of my work for, you know, for a very long time. And I printed a few copies. In those days, it was a big deal to print copies. So you had to go to, you know, it wasn't that it just came off a home printer. And for the life of me, I'm sure nobody's read a word. And uh, so, you know, probably my supervisor has and I got a, I got a mark, so she must have. But nobody else, really, if I think about it. And the amount of thought and energy that had gone into it. And contrast that with, like, this book or many things that I've done after that, you know, like even just preparing a meal for a bunch of people and serving it to them and having those happy faces. You know, it's such a communal, it's such an activity, it's such a joy. There's The, the audience is so clearly engaged and interested that um, it was kind of a no-brainer. I mean, it wasn't a no-brainer because it was really difficult for me to transition from somewhere where I felt very comfortable with the world of words and, you know, and academia and journalism and things that I've done before. To become a cook was difficult, but it was really satisfying, you know, that sense that you cook something and people really acknowledge how good it is, how delicious and Later on, when I started publishing cookbooks, fast forward you know, 10 years or so, obviously that translates itself to sales and reactions and reviews and all the rest. So that, that's super satisfying. Do you still feel that even you know, after all this time, after all this success, do you still feel the, the power of food and the, you know, the power of words still bring people together, make them happy? Totally, totally. I'm fortunate enough to have this come, come my way through more channels now. So obviously, um, you know, with social media and, and the fact that people can immediately report about their own experiences cooking recipes that I publish, I immediately get this, those reactions, you know, so, so, you know, flavor has been in people's hands for maybe a couple of weeks at the most. And I've already seen hundreds of images of people cooking the dishes and reporting success. I, I haven't had failures yet, but those will come no doubt at some point. But th there isn't really anything better than seeing people really happy. And, and it is the one thing that gives me the, the greatest pleasure. Uh, the idea that people have cooked a recipe that I've been involved in creating and that becomes part of the repertoire. You know, that is so satisfying. And when you, after the Cordon Bleu, you trained in some pretty good kitchens. You um, Kensington in place, with Brody Lee, Launch in place. Why did you decide to move out and, and open the first Ottolenghi rather than staying in the kitchen and perhaps going straight into your own restaurant? Was it, was it a conscious decision? It wasn't really enough of the kitchen at that point because when we opened Ottolenghi, uh, I was in the kitchen more than any time before. So I spent the first few years... Uh, so Sammy was in charge of cooking the food and I was in charge of patisserie uh, or pastry and there was a lot of overlap and I would work with him sometimes. And so I spent quite a few years working very long hours and very hard in the kitchen in our company. And I didn't really think that that would change as a result of opening Ottolenghi. It was, it was a takeout deli with a small sitting area. 
But um, the reception was so phenomenally good that things kind of took their own course. So we've opened a restaurant, well, a deli plus a restaurant in Islington a few years later. And then the books came, I had a Guardian column and then the books came about. So I've been drifting away from the kitchen as a kind of a, a cooking for, for, for a good decade and a half. But it wasn't like a choice. It was more like a, a natural progression. And I remember, because I, I lived in the area when you opened, I remember the beauty, the first time I walked past thinking, dear God, the beauty of those meringues. You know, the, the window was as much a work of art as the cooking was. I mean, was that, again, very much the seduction of food through 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 uh, sight and not just flavour? You know, you couldn't help but stop and your jaw would gape open, just at the, at the beauty <laughs> of everything. Was that always very important, how things looked as well as they tasted? Yes, definitely. I think one of the things that people ask me a lot about the aesthetics of Ottolenghi, what you know, the, what we do, the, the the nature of those visual decisions that are being made, and I always say that at the end of the day, you know, that what it is is they is I've got the instincts of a retailer, you know, someone who sells food for a living, and, and in a way, the Notting Hill format or formula or aesthetics is very much what's been guiding what happened since, which doesn't necessarily have to do with presenting food on a counter for people to buy. I mean, some of it is recipes and books, and sometimes it's a dish in a restaurant that has never appears before anyone is actually is about to eat it. But when you sell food for a living, and that would anyone who sells food for a living, cooked food or or ingredients, would tell you that people immediately zoom in on something on the visuals of it because that they haven't had a chance to taste it yet. And that is a very powerful tool. Every time you go to a, a great market, you know, food market, you know how it works. You know, the stallholders, they, they're, they're, they're polishing their, their fruit. They're making sure everything is beautiful. They're spraying their herbs, you know, because they just know it, it all translates to the bottom line. You know, if the, if the parsley wasn't sprayed with water and was looking a bit droopy, you'd sell less. And I think that was kind of my our instincts in Nothing Hill. If the meringues were not perk and beautiful and shiny, and the broccoli was overcharged, then people would just not buy it. And, and for me, that's always been the informing instinct. From that shop in Notting Hill, you look back now, there's actually an expression, the Ottolini effect. I know how modest you are, but this is millions of cookbooks sold, you know, a household name, but also this surge. I mean, we, we think of a time, a lot of us cooks, of a time before Ottolini. Now, we knew about orange blossom and pomegranate seeds to an extent Zatar, but you sort of brought it into the mainstream, perhaps, in the UK. Was that a conscious process or was it very much this is how I cook and the fact that most of the UK took it up and became obsessed is just a a, a side product I never had a plan there is a business instinct I guess that is a healthy one to just realize what people are after and what's gaining popularity and then just do give people more of that so when Sammy Tamimi and I started cooking our food in Ottolenghi we just realized that it was you know, extremely popular. So we did more of the, of the same thing. And then obviously it translated into different mediums and different locations and all the rest. But essentially that's what it is because I'm not really someone to tell people what to do, what to eat. I don't have, I don't have a mission. I, I would love people to eat better, but I don't want to be the one telling them that they should eat better. I, would, I want them just to, to make their own choices. So, you know, putting those ingredients out there because I know they're great. I just think like people would just 
try it and know it's it's a wonderful thing in front of them and then hopefully they'll eat more vegetables as a result i never want to tell people that they should or have to eat more vegetables it's just it's not it's not my style but i don't think it's very effective either I mean, there's often a misconception that, that you're vegetarian, but, you know, you see in all your recipes, I mean, you, you do eat meat, but what, what is it about vegetables? I mean, vegetables are having, thank God, their time in the sun at the moment. People are realising quite how wonderful and versatile and thrilling and exciting they can be, but you do use a lot of vegetables in your cooking you always have. Is that to do with upbringing or just the love of what vegetables can do? I, I think it is a lot to do with where, the, you know, where I was brought up. So growing up in Jerusalem, you know, the, the, just the balance was quite different. So we've, we ate meat at home and I still serve meat at home and fish. And, but it's really was much more about the vegetables. And I use that word to describe anything that is, you know, plant-based, whether it's lentils or chickpeas or peppers or tomatoes. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's things that, come out of the soil and as opposed to so meat was more special and I think that hierarchy of meat being special and vegetable being day-to-day is definitely something that has had I've had growing up and comes naturally to me but I also I also realize that there is a great opportunity here because in some ways the ignorance of some people about what the potential of vegetable is has been my making because I think that, you know, any any vegetable from potato to a sweet to a tomato to an aubergine to a green bean, you know, all of them are wonderful. And it's just about putting them out there. And, and, and every culinary culture that has vegetables at its core uh, recognizes that and, and realizes that and, and uses the potential. But unfortunately, in the UK and in many parts of North America, Northern Europe, that potential has just not been exploited. I mean, it's a very different place where we're now, like as if we compare it to how it was, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. But all that potential has not been exploited. And funnily enough, if you look at my book now, yes, there's a lot of wonderful foreign ingredients, you know, Mexican chilies and Chinese rice wine and all sorts of things. But in actual fact, it's the humble vegetables that haven't really changed. You know, that we've got turnips and swedes and cauliflowers and celeriac and carrots. They are the stars of this book. And they're all local UK-based ingredients that have been here forever. And it's that kind of realizing how good they are and putting them out there and dressing them up in a particular way to make them stand out in in the way that they do is actually what I do now. It's funny, as you were saying, because in, in Britain, especially, I suppose, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, vegetables were boiled for about two hours until they become some stinking pulp. And, you know, they were seen as side dishes. They were overcooked, badly treated, disrespected. You know, the vegetarian option in, in pubs and restaurants, usually be, would you be lucky to get a sort of, you might get a, a very boring salad or a goat's cheese salad or something like that. But you're so important in this movement to sing about the joy of vegetables. But going back to your childhood, um, your parents in terms of a culinary background your father was Italian uh, your mother came to Jerusalem via Berlin and you were obviously born in Jerusalem so you had three great culinary cultures all coming together as a child did you feel that when you were growing up um I don't think I realized that when I was growing up but I, I was definitely I'm a child of that wonderful eclectic mix and so yeah so like you say Tom I mean I, my dad is from Italy and there were all the Italian sens- sensibilities, especially in, he's from northern Italy, which is, by the way, very different from the south. 
the South is more similar to the Middle Eastern food in many ways, but that, that kind of Northern Italian approach, which is all about incredible ingredients with very little done to them. You know, my dad could just take potatoes, rosemary, and olive oil and create something really unusual out of this minimal combination of ingredients. Uh, plus my mom's kind of more central European heritage, you know, with the cabbages and the hams and, you know, the German tradition, they were very prominent. But I think more, more than those particular influences, it was their curiosity and the fact that we lived at the heart of the Middle East. And Jerusalem had this incredible uh, tradition of Palestinian cooking, which is now starting to be recognized, at least here, but in other parts of the world, through cookbooks and restaurants where it is an amazing food tradition. And people often talk about the food of the Levant and have written about the food of the Levant, you know, Claudia Rodin and people that followed her, you know, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, bit of Egypt. But in actual fact, these, there's lots of cuisines there. Palestinian food is really quite wonderful. So on top of the hummus and the, and the falafel and the baba ganoush-ish style salad that people might know, there's a whole range of hearty stews and different vegetable dishes, and they're all very, very interesting and delicious. And this was another influence that I had. So from those three main influences, but I think particularly that Middle Eastern way of looking at food, this is what I had from the Palestinian tradition, has really stuck. And I've, I'm, I think I've really benefited because it's, it's a wonderful cooking tradition. And in terms of Jewish cooking, was your influences more more Sephardi than Ashkenazi, or did you have a mix of both? Yes, so most more Sephardi. Um, so I, I actually, none of my parents cook particularly. Jews in Italy are a whole different breed. They kind of cook their own ver- versions of Italian traditional dishes. So my paternal grandmother used to cook, you know, gnocchi alla romana and different pastas and vegetables, lightly fried and marinated in vinegar, etc. So very Italian tradition, but Jewish Italian, like artichokes and things like that. And my mother's side, they were extremely untraditional in so many ways. So, uh, you know, to the extent that we even consumed pork at home. And, uh, and so I wouldn't say that it was either Sephardi or Ashkenazi, but naturally I'm more drawn towards the Sephardi food culture because it's just more vibrant and more suitable to the Middle East. And it just, it just, more naturally flows in this part of the world for me than the Ashkenazi tradition. Although I just have to say that the Ashkenazi tradition has some incredible delicious dishes. And uh, in Jerusalem, Sami and I talk about it, particularly in the dessert section, you know, when, with the cakes like babkas and those incredible yeasted cakes that are definitely wonderful. I mean, Jerusalem is one of my, my, my favorite of your books. And the introduction you know, talking about uh, Sammy came from, you know, a child in the Muslim East Jerusalem and in the Jewish West, your father, Michael, was, you know, the, the similarities and the differences, it, all in this one vibrant city. I mean, is, is Jerusalem still, I mean, I've always wanted to go there, but is it an incredible place to eat? Yes, it's an incredible place to eat. It's really diverse. Diverse doesn't even start to st- describe it. It's just, there's just a lot going on. I mean, people, you know, I always say that we're so fortunate in London to have immigrants and from, from so many places. We tend to, to, and we do have great representations of the foods of different cultures and different corners of the world. But whenever you go to a particular place, you just realize how incredibly superior it is, you know, when you have it there. You know, it happened to me 
when I went to Vietnam for the first time, and I've had Vietnamese food before, but there was you couldn't compare the experience to having it here and, and there. And Jerusalem is similar, you know. The, it's something in the air. There's something in the soil. There's something in the in the terroir that just creates different food, and it is very exciting. And especially, I mean, Palestinian cooking is fantastic. Modern Israeli cuisine, whatever that means, the, the definitions are very <laughs> complicated and very political in this context, is really interesting. And I think those hybrids are super exciting and and very very and uh, worthwhile trying. You know, post. Corona, I think. I mean, I have never been to Beirut, but I hear similar things are happening there as well. I mean, these melting pots of cultures in the Middle East produce amazing food. I read that you described yourself as a greedy kid. Was food always important from an early age? Yes, it was incredible. You know, now that I've been doing this promotion, that people ask me about my own kids and raising kids and having, I mean, to me, almost every childhood memory is tied to food experience. You know, I, I don't know why it is. I don't know what made me the way I was, but my most vibrant, strongest memories are, are food related. And it's food, I guess, these are emotional moments or evocative, essential moments. They stick. Uh, some of those, yeah, I was always both loved food and was generally naturally attracted to it and I remember one of our earliest memories so in the 80s or the late 70s when I was a young boy we used to go quite a lot to the West Bank it was before the Intifada before the the conflict has erupted in such a way that it did later on and I remember going to places like Jericho and Bethlehem and Nablus which are you know big uh, Palestinian towns and having the most incredible culinary sensations. Oranges in Jericho are fantastic. They make the best juice and it's very hot. And so you get those kind of the tomatoes and everything just tastes better. And having those platters with grilled meats and the, the meze and they're all so, such, such evocative experiences, such strong experiences. And that's really how my, that's how I remember my childhood through all these food experiences. And your mother, I remember reading an article about your mother cooking from a cookbook called The International Cookbook. So, I mean, not yeah. just with the fascinating mix of your parents' backgrounds, but also, you, you know, you'd be eating sort of Malaysian curries and tiramisu. So, I mean, you're known for your open-mindedness about cooking, how you don't feel prescribed by certain cuisine. For example, you know, your, uh, your pasta with cacio e pepe with the za'atar. You know, you, you're, you're not ever imprisoned by the rigours of, of, of one cuisine. Do you feel that your upbringing sort of helped develop that, that freedom you have? Definitely, that's, that is the case. I think somehow if you grow up in a very evolved food tradition, let's say you grew up in Italy or in Lebanon or in Morocco, where dishes have names and have a history and and there's only one way to make them and it's a prescribed way. And those are amazing experiences to be had. And I can't, I would have loved to probably maybe grown up in one of these food traditions but it doesn't give you a lot of space to play. So, you know, and, and I thought people who grew up in Italy say that, and cooks and chefs say, you know, it's a very dominant food tradition and it's very difficult to steer away. And, it's, and people are very proud of it, but also protective of it. And I feel that I've grown up without a real one food tradition. It was a nascent food tradition. I don't think it's taken shape really yet. Uh, so I've benefited from the fact that kind of almost every, everything goes. So you can be very creative. And obviously you are, I wasn't in a bubble. So I was, you know, exposed to, through my family and particularly because my mom was and still is a very adventurous cook. 
I just managed to be able to allow myself the freedom to cook uh, under all these guises and traditions. And you mentioned the Zathar Cacio Pepe that we have in flavor. Ista and I have thought quite a while before we've decided to include this recipe in the book because it's kind of almost, uh, it's, it's almost risky, <laughs> uh, tempting fate to, to, uh, to play with, a cla- with such a classic because why would you? But on the other hand, you know, that addition of za'atar, maybe a, a handful of or, organo leaves or marjoram leaves, it's just so good when you've got this emulsification of cheese and butter and black pepper. The addition of a hard herb is totally consistent with this food tradition. I mean, somewhere else in Italy, they might be adding sage instead of za'atar. Those are close together. So I think a lot before I do these fusions because I, I, I think it can, it can easily go wrong. But if you're considerate and you understand what you're doing, then it can also go really well. Oh, it's, a, it's an inspired recipe, but you've always been interested. You know, we know that food is so much more than just sustenance and, you know, the technical craft. It's something that brings people together that make, you know, it's, it's health, it's wealth, it's happiness. It's a prism through which you can see everything, history and economics. But you think a lot, of, don't you, about the origins of dishes, of the story of, of different cuisines, why certain dishes are what they are. Does that interest you a lot? Yeah, almost more than anything else. So if I need to choose between the chemistry of food and the historical, cultural background, I would go for the latter. I just love the stories of food. I love the political context, the historical context, the sociological context. I I just find them fascinating. I think it's just because I've always been interested in these questions in other fields as well, like politics and and economics and things that I'm interested in. But with food... It's doubly interesting because those are dishes that I like to eat and cook. And the story of, you know, in this book, there's so many times that I need, I don't need to, but I, I kind of find the, the urge to justify things. So there is a recipe for caponata in this book, which is, a, you know, it's a Sicilian dish of a su- sweet and sour dish with the aubergine, sometimes peppers, it's got uh, capers and olives. It's a, it's a very, it's something very delicious. And, We've given it a twist, Easter and I, and, and turned it slightly Asian, slightly Chinese with soy and jousting wine, and we serve it with silken tofu. And, and when I do that, I go like, I know that it's delicious. I have no qualm about putting these two cultures together in this context. But what is the story that I'm actually telling? I mean, how can I justify it to some skeptical audience? And it's very easy. I mean, that's... Tofu, how different is that from ricotta? You know, something very kind of bland on purpose that is supposed to take over other flavors and could have easily ended there with that caponata. Those, you know, fermented condiments that are so part of the Chinese cooking have their counterparts in Italian cooking with anchovies and all all kinds of things. It just makes total sense. But to know that gives you, a, it's interesting, but it also gives you a, a talking point. It's kind of, it, it makes sense, but you, you can also communicate it. And, and I love communicating uh, my ideas. And it, it seems to fit, especially with the caponata. You, you have that Moorish influence. You know, Sissi, I suppose, is one of those food cultures that, that, you know, you can see the invaders on your plate, can't you? Who's come in and who's passed through and what techniques they've left behind and what flavours. It just seems a, an extension of that, really. It doesn't seem in any way uh, controversial. It, it seems entirely rational. Yeah, totally. It's only these days that we are so obsessed with purity and authenticity. I mean, 
I don't think anyone was ever interested in authenticity as much as we are. The least authentic people are interested in, in kind of putting fossilizing ideas and dishes. And I think it's very telling. Like you say, you know, Sicily has an incredible history where it sits there in the middle between Europe and North Africa and the Middle East. And all those influences are there, you know, sweet and sour is not a combination my dad, a Northern Italian, would have put on his, on his plate. You know, he just hated adding fruit to, to meat dishes. I mean, fruit were fruit and meat is meat. But in Sicily, you would have things that are more similar to North Africa. And North Africa, uh, Morocco, got that through from Persia. And all these connections are really fascinating, interesting, and legitimate. I don't think there's any reason to be so stuck up with authenticity. But the other side of that, and I always have to say that, is that it's really important to tell the story. So although I'm not claiming that only one person gets it right or should be cooking or anything of that nature, I think it's really important to acknowledge the origins of dishes, how they came about, who created them and where and where and how. You can go ahead and play with them, but it's it's really important to to do the other thing is that point to the moment of creation, how this thing came about, because people do deserve credit for, for their food and, and, uh, and there's just so much credit to dish around. Exactly. And, and going back to the book, you know, with flavour, in the book there are three main principles, aren't there? You talk about your process, pairing and, and produce. How did you come up with a theme for this book? Obviously, it's, it's, it's recipes that are, don't take too much work, you know, weeknights and low effort, high impact. But was, did you suddenly think, ah, oh, flavour? That's what I'm going to do. No. So it's really interesting that you ask because people often make a wrong assumption when they look at the books and think that there was an idea and then the recipes came after that. Like, oh, I wanted to create this theoretical construct about how what happens in dishes. And then I fill that up with dishes that I wanted to, to do. But actually, it's always the other way around. I wanted to do a vegetable book because since I've published two in the past, plenty and plenty more, and I wanted to add another one because it's been quite a while since plenty more was published in 2016, I believe. So it's coming up to five years. And the idea was that I've learned so many more things uh, about vegetables and how to cook them in that period that I wanted to showcase those recipes, uh, mostly published in The Guardian, but also at other outlets. And Easter and I sat and compiled our favorite recipes. And for me, every book should start with from your favorite recipes, not from any other place. Uh, you know, we had 50 killer recipes that we love. And we said that those have to be in the book. And then we thought, okay, so what else do we want to add? Do we have too many root vegetables and not enough? You know, we balanced it out a bit. And then we had a look at it. And I really wanted to understand what's going on here and what makes a good vegetable dish. I wanted to open my own eyes, but also the reader's eyes, to what, are, what comes out, what is the story that these recipes are telling us. And we started dividing them into chapters. There was a chapter about fat, like, you know, different types of fat into playing in one dish. So you'd have fat from oil and fat from cheese and fat from yogurt. And when they all come together in one dish, you get these layers of different qualities of fat and they make the dishes exciting, etc. Or one other chapter was about uh, nuts and seeds, like how you take different nuts and seeds and they also elevate dishes and create those incredible vegetable dishes. But fat and nuts and seeds, and then sometimes it was about the process, like browning or charring, 
are very different categories. And it seemed like a really confused book. One chapter says uh, charring and the other one says acidity and the third one just says onions. It just doesn't make sense. So our, my colleague and collaborator, uh, Tara Wigley, who's been working with me for, for over a decade and is an incredible observer and, and she comes from publishing, so she has a really good eye. She was in a doctor's appointment and I asked her to look at the book and say, Tara, could you make heads and tails of this kind of mess? And she said, she had her light bulb moment when she was talking to a doctor. I don't know what it was it was about, but I don't know what he, the doctor said that made her realize that it was all about three Ps. There was pairing, there was process, and there was produce. And these three categories really capture the different things that are going on in great vegetable dishes. And that's how the, the book got its structure. And that's what we're trying to convey, that some recipes are really you can really capture them by the processes that are happening through browning or charring or aging. Some recipes are all about particular pairing, pairing with acidity, pairing with sweetness, pairing with heat. And the, the, the third are about produce, certain ingredients like mushrooms or nuts or onions and garlic, alliums, that are re- it's really all about those that make them so delicious and so special. Well, it, it, it makes perfect sense now. And, and uh, you know, I'm not just saying this, but really anyone who's listening, you, you would have bought it, all you listeners already, this book. It is fantastic. Really sadly, we're nearly out of time for today. But, you know, Tim, before we go, um, there's a few quick questions that we put to all of our podcast guests. So here we go. Now, being Fortnum's, of course, the first question is, describe your perfect cup of tea. <laughs> My perfect cup of tea. Uh, well, I'm actually having it now. Uh, I'm not trying to promote Fortnum, uh, really, but I do like the Fortnum teas, and, I've, and I'm lucky enough to get hampers and stuff around Christmas, so I have, I have a nice thing. I don't, I don't make a huge ceremony out of it. I use mugs, and it's not China cups and all the rest, but I do like a good English tea with a bit of milk poured at the end with very little ceremony. And I have it with a piece of dark chocolate because dark chocolate is the one thing that I own. I have to have at least twice a day and I, I, I never give it up. Very good for you too. What's your most joyous memory when it comes to a meal? The most joyous memory, I, actually a memory that comes to my mind is from the old days of Ottolenghi, maybe the 2005 or six or, you know, the early days when we had a lot of people working, I mean, it was still a small company, maybe with just one shop and maybe one other. And Carl, my husband and I used to entertain people and have people at home for Christmas dinner. And we would collect all the wastes and strays from the company people from all over the world who were not with their families and have a big, big meal in our apartment in, in Notting Hill where we put up a big table and everybody came we had a lot of leftovers from the shop and we would cook together and then you would sit like 20 people at those very long tables and it was just wonderful. How lovely. Um, what food or drink do you wish you'd invented? Oh gosh, maybe... I wish I'd invented the Negroni. <laughs> Such a clever thing. Everybody loves it. It's so popular at the moment. Whoever made it the first time had, had something very clever going on. So yeah. Yeah, the bracing bitterness yeah yeah no it's just a wonderful thing yeah and also yeah those different types of bitterness everything coming together it's it's perfect okay what's the best way to eat bread or what's your favorite kind of bread gosh i i do really love a good sourdough bread i've always loved it and i've always loved we're so fortunate at the moment because there's so many good bakeries around i don't bake sourdough bread i have done in the past but 
it's just too much work at the moment. Um, but I do love a good sourdough bread with olive oil. It's nothing special. It's a flaky salt. That's just the way it should be eaten. And yeah, that's a predictable answer, but it's just the right answer for me. Totally lovely. What's been your biggest disaster in the kitchen? There's a lot of small disasters. It's, it feels like there's always some disaster happening, things not going as, as planned. I think it was a couple of books ago and I was going doing a, a cookery demo to promote the book. And I had to do uh, quinoa cakes. And I was on a stage and I only had to demonstrate one thing which would have led immediately to the Q&A. It was all this... And for the life of me, these quinoa cakes just went all over the place. I was on stage, there was 200 people, and I couldn't get them to hold. As soon as I put one in the oil, it would just completely disintegrate into dust. And, uh, and that was the only thing I had to show. So I had to just say, look, this is just not going to happen. I hope it boosts your confidence to see that this is, this is happening to me. And uh, then we uh, carried on. I think what I realized later was that they were prepared in the morning and they were sitting there drying and there was nothing, no moisture to bind them <laughs> anymore by the time it was time for me to fry them. So that was a pre- pretty big disaster. It happens to the best, what, the best, <laughs> best chefs as well. well um, do you listen to music when you cook? Uh, yes, I do listen to music. I listen to Bob Dylan, David Bowie, old things that I've been listening to for many years. And I have to listen to familiar things because I, re- I want to know it. I don't want to listen to something new when I, when I cook because I don't really pay enough attention. But when it's playing in the background, it's something that I love, then it just kind of carries me with it. Beautiful. And finally, what are the three ingredients that you think are essential store cupboard items? It, it will change depending on when you ask me. But for me, an essential store cupboard item is tahini, which I, I have to have. There's a spice that I end up using a lot. I wouldn't say it's my favorite spice, but it's my most used spice, which is cumin. And I use it a lot because it's just so cross-cultural. It really travels from, from Mexico to North Africa to the Middle East to India and China. It's just it's everywhere, and it's just it's a great flavor. And um, I guess olive oil, essential. Okay. Well, really sadly, that's it for today. Yotam, thank you so, so much for your time. It's been an absolute joy to talk. And huge thanks, of course, to you as well for tuning in. If you haven't already, do let us know if you're enjoying the Hungry Mind series so far by leaving a rating and a review. And remember, you can also subscribe to Fortnum's Hungry Minds wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. We'll be sitting down with more brilliant guests for conversations around the latest food innovations, the joy of cooking and their love of real food.